Chapter 32 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hawaii in August 2022. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 32 What We Know About Electricity. What is electricity? Some questions we may answer since the discovery of electrons. What is matter? What is an electric charge? What is an electric current? The difference between a continuous and an alternating current. What is magnetism? The ether of space. What is light? Discovery of a missing link. What is heat? What is chemical union? Importance of the electron theory. Many years ago, I heard one workman explain to another that electricity was made of sulfuric acid and lead. He was evidently aware that accumulators contain lead plates and dilute sulfuric acid, and he knew that electricity was drawn from these accumulators at will, Therefore, it seemed to him as though electricity must be composed of these substances. People sometimes twit the electrician with the question, what is electricity, as if his branch of science was very deficient in real knowledge compared with other departments of science. If the questioner is asked, what is matter, he will no doubt realize that none of these very simple-looking questions are so easily answered. It will be of interest, however, to see how far we have succeeded in explaining the mysteries of electrical phenomena. Suppose you were asked what is water, you might reply that it is built up of very small particles or molecules of water, each of which is composed of two atoms of the gas hydrogen and one of oxygen. In the same manner we believe we may answer the questions what is matter, what is an electric charge? What is an electric current? What is magnetism? What is light? What is heat? And so on. Some of these questions may seem to have no direct connection with the subject of electricity, but we shall see that a very intimate relationship does exist in each case. When electricity at high tension from an induction coil was passed through a vacuum tube, such as has been described in connection with X-ray work, it was found that a stream of flying particles was shot across the tube from one electrode to the other. At first it was supposed that these flying particles must be atoms of matter, but later it was proved that these particles were not matter. They are far smaller than the invisible atoms of matter. Scientists were forced to the conclusion that these were particles of electricity and they were christened electrons, after the Greek word for amber. A great deal of attention was directed towards these electrons, which some have preferred to call corpuscles. It was found that those particles of electricity were always of the kind called negative. It will be remembered that from the early days it was evident that there were two distinct kinds of electricity, although it was a single fluid theory that suggested the names positive and negative. We have definite proof that negative electricity is made up of small particles, 
just as matter is molecular in nature. We have no definite evidence as to the nature of positive electricity, but the discovery of the negative particles has opened up a whole world of new interests to us. We believe the atoms of matter to be composed of little congregations of these electrons. We picture each atom as a miniature solar system, a group of electrons revolving at enormous speeds. Of course, electrons being little particles of negative electricity would all tend to fly away from one another, just as any two similarly electrified bodies will. We therefore picture a counterpart of positive electricity in each atom, but what form it takes we cannot determine. Until recently it was common to picture the electrons revolving within a tiny sphere of positive electricity. Now it seems likely we shall find positive electricity to be molecular in nature also. In other words, that it will turn out to be composed of particles which, although much larger than the negative electrons, are still infinitesimally small. We have always recognized the fact that an atom of gold must be something quite different from an atom of lead or of hydrogen gas. We now believe the real difference to be due to the number of electrons which compose it. We must understand that these revolving electrons are locked up within the atom. We cannot interfere with their energy. We may heat the substance, composed of the atoms, to a temperature of thousands of degrees, or we may chill it down till its temperature reads 300 degrees below zero on the Fahrenheit scale, and yet the atoms remain as before. The substance will, of course, alter from a solid to a liquid or a gaseous condition, or the other way about when cooling. But an atom of gold remains always an atom of gold, and an atom of hydrogen cannot be changed into anything else. Atoms have been called the little bricks of nature. The electron theory has added to this picture, for now we have some idea of what these invisible bricks are composed. In very rare cases we see evidences of an atom breaking up, and some of the electrons escaping from within the atom. The most notable case is that of radium, of which we read in an earlier chapter. But I have mentioned electrons flying across an X-ray tube. Where did these come from? It is quite evident that they cannot come from the inside of the atom. They must have been outsiders. We have ample evidence that there are a great many electrons which are attached only in a temporary manner to the atoms of matter. Indeed, we picture these as roving electrons wandering about from atom to atom. The old world experiment of rubbing a piece of amber with a fur or cloth has a new interest to us. We have caused a surplus of these roving or detachable electrons to leave the rubber and take up their lodgment upon the amber. We have added so many little particles of negative electricity to the amber that it shows an appreciable negative charge. A body charged with electricity has therefore a new meaning. If it is negatively charged, we picture a surplus of electrons upon its surface. There must of necessity be a corresponding deficiency of electrons on some neighboring body or bodies, and we describe this condition as positively charged. The transfer of electrons from one body to another affects the surface only. 
Long before we knew anything about electrons, we were aware that an electric charge resided only upon the surface. When we speak of a discharge of electricity, such as we see on a grand scale in lightning, we picture a sudden expulsion of electrons from one body to another. In the case of lightning, it is from one cloud to another, or between a cloud and the earth. When Volta made the first electric battery, he caused the atoms in the zinc plate to hand electrons along the connecting wire to the atoms in the copper plate. The electrons were handed on from atom to atom in the wire, each atom giving up a spare electron to its neighbor on one side as it accepted an electron from its neighbor on the other side. We therefore picture a steady flow of electrons along a wire, and we say that an electric current is flowing in the wire. These moving electrons disturb the ether of space surrounding them, and the energy of the electric current is carried really by the ether. It is well to take particular note of this, lest anyone should imagine that the electrons fly along the wire with the speed of the electric current. As a matter of fact, the rate of travel of the electrons may be measured conveniently in inches per minute or in yards per hour. The action, however, commences simultaneously along the whole line. When considering dynamos, we saw that we might produce either a continuous or an alternating current in the mains. In the former case, we set up a regular march of electrons from atom to atom along the line. But in the case of an alternating current, we cause the electrons to curse to and fro from atom to atom, say first of all in one direction, and then in the other. Of course, the surrounding ether will be disturbed, and energy will be transmitted just as in the previous case. In addition to these roving electrons, we picture others which revolve steadily around certain kinds of atoms, particularly the atoms of iron. These moving electrons produce magnetism. This helps us to extend the picture of a magnetic body which we considered in Chapter 4. But if moving electrons produce magnetic effects in the surrounding ether, we should expect a steady flow of electrons along a wire to produce magnetism also. We have known this to be a fact for nearly a century, although no reason could be assigned for it. It was a Danish philosopher who, in 1819, discovered that an electric current flowing in a wire set up a magnetic field around it. Possibly the repeated mention of this ether of space is rather mystifying to some readers. The nature of the ether is a very great mystery to every scientist. This does not mean, as some might suppose, that the ether is not a real existing thing. To all who consider the subject seriously, it is as real as the air they breathe. It would be better if we agreed to spell the name of this mysterious medium, ether, with A-E, instead of the much more common spelling ether with E. The word ether seems to take us farther away from any known form of matter, and it is quite evident that, whatever may be the nature of the space-filling medium, it is not any form of ordinary matter. One theory suggests that it is an infinitely light gas, while another demands for it a density greater than that of lead. The latter theory may appear, at first sight, to be quite ridiculous. But if we picture matter as holes in a very dense medium, the theory is not inconceivable. 
However, all that concerns us at present is that although the nature of the ether is a complete mystery, its presence is very real, and the part it plays in the universe is of primary importance. We know that light is simply waves in this all-pervading medium. We are familiar with the fact that a substance when heated to an incandescent state will set up these ether waves of light. Until quite recently, it was a mystery to us how atoms of matter could disturb the ether, for it is apparent that even huge lumps of matter, such as the planets, can move through the ether without any appreciable resistance being offered to their movements. Here we are on the back of a great planet, flying through space at the enormous speed of 1,000 miles per minute, and the ether does not disturb even our flimsy atmospheric blanket, which we carry wrapped around us in our great flight. The electron theory supplies the missing link between the ether and matter. We have experimental proof that there are satellite electrons revolving around their atoms, just as the moon revolves around our Earth. These satellite electrons make billions of revolutions per second, and in doing so they disturb the ether and produce those waves which we call light. If these satellite electrons revolve at a comparatively slow rate, they produce long ether waves. In other words, waves few and far between. These waves do not affect our vision, but they produce heat. We call them radiant heat waves, but of course they are not warm, they are merely waves in the ether. The sun sets up such waves and they reach us across the space of millions of miles, but that space is not heated. It is only when these ether waves fall upon matter that they produce the phenomenon known as heat. A flying bullet on the battlefield may produce pain when it strikes a soldier, but the flying bullet is not the pain. When the satellite electrons revolve at a speed sufficient to produce the short waves which affect our eyes, these waves give rise to a variety of sensations. A certain rate of waves produces the sensation of red, a higher rate gives rise to green, where a still higher rate stimulates the violet sensation. When all these waves fall upon the same part of the retina at the one time, we have that sensation which we describe as white. Another point upon which the electron theory has shed new light is the nature of chemical union. We have no doubt that chemical union is simply electrical union between the atoms of matter. It is really a case of electrical attraction between oppositely charged atoms. This adds a new interest to electrochemical actions. We see how it is that by passing an electric current through water, we get the atoms of hydrogen and oxygen to part company and escape as oxygen and hydrogen gases. We have answered, in some measure, the questions with which we set out, regarding the nature of matter, electric charges, electric currents, magnetism, light and heat. It has only been possible to draw the very barest outline of the electron theory. The subject is so large that to give even a popular account of it requires a volume as large as the present one. I have endeavoured to do this recently in a book called Scientific Ideas of Today. That the electron theory appeals to the general reader, as well as to the scientist, is witnessed by the fact that this popular account to which I have referred 
has gone into a third edition within its first year. Personally, I believe that the electron theory is the beginning of a new era of thought. End of chapter 32